Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And as usual, if you have any questions uh, that you would like us to take some time to answer, we would love for you to send them in, as we really do try to take time week over week to answer those questions. Uh, there's two ways you can send in those questions. One is an email. Uh, the email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a let's or a podcast question or a let's be the Bible podcast question. Or you can direct message our Facebook page, We Are the Grove Church in Washington State, uh, and you can DM us there. I guess as a reminder, too, the Let's Read the Bible Together plan is monthly. So as you listen to this, it will be June. Or not June, July. Wow. So, yep. make sure so make sure you download the new, the new plan. Exactly. All right. Well, listeners, beloved listeners, we are going to be in basically 2 Samuel. We're going to finish it out. I think according to the actual week, we don't quite finish it, but there's only a few chapters left over. So we figured, you know, clean break, let's wrap up Samuel, and then we'll get into Kings next week as well. So that'll be great. And we'll have some Psalms. And, uh, you know, since we're talking about the life of David, obviously some of these Psalms are going to be a little... Um, they're going to apply. They're going to apply in fun ways. Are you so, sure? I don't no, know if fun, I don't know if fun's the right word actually, but they're going <laughs> to they're going to apply to the stories, but that'll be later. All right. So, this week we're just going to power through. Chapter 7 begins with Yahweh's covenant with David. So this is one of the great covenants that we know in history. So there's the Abrahamic covenant, which is God's promise uh to Abraham uh to bless the nations of the earth through him. And then we also have the Davidic covenant and obviously the Mosaic covenant, which is, you know, the, that's the, the big one with the law and everything. So David's covenant is promising to establish his throne forever. Yes. And real quick, if you don't know what a covenant is, it's okay if you don't. Uh, I don't want to assume that everybody knows. That's true. Uh, but the word covenant is, is a, a very... It's a much deeper, more profound, more intentional way of saying it uh, for the simple way. It's like a, a promise, uh, a vow that's made, uh, but it's a contractual binding agreement between two parties. Yeah, we don't really use covenant in modern English very often. The one exception would be the marriage ceremony. So to give you an idea, that's essential. it's a set of mutual promises that you're making to someone else. Uh, so here's a couple interesting points, though. David wants to build a temple and Yahweh asks why he thinks he should do this. Uh, and it kind of just gets at the idea that the Israelites continually, as we get out, so when, we, when we're looking in the period of the judges, Israel is very unique among the nations of their region. They don't have a king. They don't have like one great city that's kind of uniting the whole area. They're a collection of tribes that essentially rule over themselves. And then they trust, they trust in Yahweh that when trouble comes, he will raise up the right leader. Well, mm -hmm. as time goes on, they become more and more like the nations around them, uh, most often to their detriment. Not always, but I mean, most often that's just kind of the way that it works out. Um, and so remember first, in, in the very beginning of 1 Samuel, we are we get the idea that they want to be like the other nations because they want a king. They don't want to have yeah. judges rule over them anymore. In the beginning of 2 Samuel, we are getting the idea that they want to be like other nations because they want Yahweh to be housed in a temple. They don't want there to be the tabernacle. They don't want there to be the, tra the traveling Ark of the Covenant. They want it to just be a building just like all the other nations have for their gods. So uh, this isn't exactly according to God's plan, and we'll get into, and David is also not going to be allowed to build that, but we'll get into that later. Spoiler. I know. So yeah, I think we've, I'm sure we've said that a few times this year. Uh, Yahweh promises to make David a great king and bring his enemies underfoot. So, and you know, that, Thanks, that, Yahweh. that checks out, that happens. Uh, he refers to David as prince of Israel which leaves Yahweh as the one true king, which I think is just, it's just interesting language that yeah. I looked up where he says specifically, I've made you a prince. Some translations say a leader over my people. Um, but the language there is very much clearly, you are under me and you're leading the people. Uh, and then finally, uh, Yahweh also tells David that his line will be protected and that his throne will last forever. So more on that when we get to the gospels. Uh, but if you want to know how that turns out, that's how it turns out. Uh, in chapter eight, we get a recap of the military victories of David, and they are plentiful. Uh, for a good time, look up a map of Israel's <laughs> borders under time. Saul. Yeah, if you're you know if you're just interested in having a good old time, look up the borders of Israel under Saul, and then look them up under David, and you'll get to see a uh, you'll get to see that they truly do expand quite a bit. Uh, and then we also catch up with some of those mighty men. We see what they're up to. And this would, I mean, there's a lot of them, but the famous ones that we can talk about are Joab and then Benaiah, who is of lion killing fame. So if you've ever wondered, hey, you know that book? 
a pit and a lion on this, or a, a lion and a pit on a snowy day. I don't remember. It's the and a pit and a pit with a lion on a snowy day. There you go. One of thank the, you, Mr. Batterson. Yeah, Doctor Batterson. Pastor Ryan on staff loves that book. He talks. It's about a great it all the time. book. Yeah, I, I haven't had the chance to read it yet, but that is Benaya of Lion Slaying fame. So there you I go. I just got no words for you, bro. It's on my shelf. I need to. I need to get to it. I have a horrible habit of just buying books. And Evan has what I like on. to call a book fetish. He loves books. He loves to have books. I, I do love he books. Loves to purchase books. Oh man. Well, anyway, I just I, I say that and I just like impulse bought a book. So, so take it from ago. me. It's a it's a really great book. Uh, Mark Batterson is the author. He's a pastor. It's a really great book, but uh, it takes a very small p- portion of the scripture and draws out an entire conversation in the book. But. Yes, that's one of the more famous uh, Mighty Men. There you go. All right, well, chapter nine sees David come into contact with someone who could actually challenge him for the throne, at least in theory. So remember, Ishbosheth is kind of the last son of Saul. Uh, he is defeated, so David's feeling pretty good with how his whole you know takeover of Israel has gone. But then this happens. So this is in 1 Samuel chapter nine. We're just gonna read the whole chapter because I actually love this story. Uh, and David said, is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So first off, great integrity character move by David there. He's literally seeking out someone because he loves Jonathan or loved Jonathan. And if you don't remember, that's his best friend who died um, in the last battle of Saul as well. And he wants to show the house of Saul kindness, even if Saul himself didn't show kindness for Jonathan's sake. Uh, so now, and which also, I, I feel like it kind of mirrors this is this is spoilers for next week, I suppose. Gosh. Uh, but it, it mirrors Yahweh's mercy on Solomon for David's sake, where the son doesn't necessarily mm. deserve mercy, uh, and Mephibosheth doesn't really do anything wrong, but he doesn't necessarily you know deserve the mercy that David's going to show. But because of his father, he's going to show him mercy, and that's what the same thing that God does for Solomon during his reign. I won't tell you how, listener. We'll leave that for <laughs> we'll leave L- that a for little next bit week. of intrigue. Yeah, a there you go. He says, now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the, da- and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he answered, I am your servant. The king said, is there not someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. Hey, that's convenient. Jonathan's son himself. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Emil at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him to the house of Machir, son of Emiel of Lodabar. I just love all the repeating. <laughs> like you can, you can tell like how I, I say this a lot, but you can tell with the historical books that they are not myths because like it's so dry in the way that they're writ- written. They're clear, clearly it's true, communicating. So true. They're clearly communicating real world events. Uh, then King David. Oh, sorry, that's the next thing. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Then David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So, you know, that's a nice little aside. Good for you, Ziba, I suppose. Uh, then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord king commands, his servant so will your servant do? So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. I wish I could say it's the last time we'll be saying Mephibosheth, because boy, that's a mouthful, but he's going to come up one more time. Uh, But yeah, so... this kindness is really important because literally at this moment, David could be killing Mephibosheth to secure his hold on the crown, mm-hmm. and yet he doesn't do this. Mephibosheth represents a clear challenger to his rightful – and if you're going by the actual legality of it, I suppose, he he is the rightful king, right? Yeah. Um, obviously, that's not God's plan, and so he's not the rightful king in that sense. But if you're going by you know, the son of the king should yeah, be taking over, Mephibosheth is next in line. Um and yet David shows him kindness. He treats him essentially as a prince. 
And then he gives him all of the family land of Saul, the king. And so he's able to sustain himself with that. So really, really cool moment. Uh, But we'll check in with both Mephibosheth and Ziba later and we'll see, you know, we'll see what they're up to. Stay tuned. Uh, So chapter 10, we take a break from heartwarming moments to get back to some military victories for David as he defeats Ammon and uh, Syria. So, hey, David. Good job, David. Oh, yeah. He's he's going for it. Not good job. Let's get to chapter 11. Uh, (laughs) Oh, man. Wah, wah, wah. That's the start of this chapter. Yeah. This is the first and arguably the greatest failure of David. Um, And this is the story of him and Bathsheba. So Mm -hmm. during some military conflicts, David stays home, which A... A little bit out of character for him, but I guess he's getting, you know, he's he's becoming a little bit more of a fat cat, you could say. And so he is <laughs> he is staying home in Jerusalem. His mighty men, his generals are out there fighting. And while he's on the roof, he spies a woman who is bathing on the roof. And he's like, whoa. Hello. She's pretty attractive. And so he goes and meets her and she's like, oh yeah, I'm Bathsheba. I'm the wife of one of your mighty men, Uriah, the Hittite, which he's, uh, his name is Uriah and he's from, you know the land of the Hittites, in case you were wondering how that works out. <laughs> oh, thanks. So that happens. Uh, one, you know, one thing leads to another and they commit adultery and uh, she gets pregnant. And so David's like, oh crap, I need to cover this up. And so he invites Uriah back, just Uriah. He's like, yeah, hey, come back from the war. And he's like, hey, I need you to do this thing for me. Okay, cool. Hey, hey, by the way, as long as you're here, go, you know, go stay with your wife for a while. That'll be fun. Cause the whole idea is, you know, they're going to stay together and then uh, they will have sex and they'll be able to cover up the fact that the son is actually David's, not Uriah's. Um, but Uriah is so loyal to- So honorable. Oh, yeah. Uriah is, oh, man, he just gets completely shafted on this. It's a bummer. But um, Uriah is so loyal that he refuses to go into his own house. He's like, it's not right that I should be able to enjoy these comforts while the men are out fighting. Hmm. David, <laughs> what a- Oops. What a lesson for you as well. So Uriah doesn't do this. Eventually, David, um, he's he's going to kill, he's going to kill Uriah, or at least have him killed, to cover this whole thing up. And so he orders Joab to essentially send in Uriah on his own, or basically he's going to send in Uriah with some men. The rest of the men are going to fall back. So it's just Uriah fighting on his own, and that he's going to be killed. Um, yeah, just just real rough. So, and that's what happens. Uriah the Hittite is killed. David's like, sweet, got away with it. And then he marries Bathsheba. Psych. Oh my god. Doesn't get away with it. No, he doesn't. So in chapter 12, Nathan confronts David. Sorry, I should say Nathan is like the main prophet during the reign of David. Um, It's weird because he doesn't really get an introduction. He's just kind of, yeah, he's just like, and then Nathan the prophet. And I was like, oh, okay. And he's, (laughs) it's weird too because he's, He's such an important character. Like this is not the only story he's in. Nathan pops up time and time again mm. in the reign of David. Um, David fully trusts Nathan and Nathan clearly is, he's not a false prophet. This is not a Balaam situation. Yeah. He is for sure receiving words from the Lord. So he goes before court and he tells David the story of a rich man with herds and herds of sheep who lives next to a poor man where they just have one lamb. Or if you watch the VeggieTales version, a man with a, or a, I don't know, an asparagus with a giant rubber ducky collection. No, a cucumber with a rubber ducky collection. And then a family of asparagus that just have one rubber ducky. So same thing. Yeah, it's exactly the exactly same thing. Exactly. Exactly. Sorry, to get back to the real Bible though. So in the story, he's the like- The real Bible. Yeah, in the real Bible. Take that, VeggieTales. Yeah, you're not actually inspired by the word of God. Um <laughs> And, and we're going to get a cease and desist order now. Oh my gosh. Anyway, sorry, so listeners. So he's telling the story. He says, you know, King David, I heard this story about there's this man. He had herds and herds of sheep and he lived next to his family. They were poor. They only had one lamb, but it was a pet. It wasn't even something they were raising for the meat. They just, you know, it was a family pet that they loved. Well, the rich man had some friends come over and he needed to, you know, provide them food because that's what was, that's what a good host does. But instead of killing one of his own sheep, King David, he went and he took the lamb from this family. And then David is like, oh, what, what, what wickedness is this? And he's like, I want that man brought before me right now and executed. And then you just kind of see Nathan like stand up and he just goes, you are the man. You have done this deed. Then he drops the mic and walks off the stage. The Lord made you king and gave you a kingdom. Why then have you done this wickedness in the sight of the Lord? I don't know. I I know that specifically, I think because of Adventures in Odyssey. I know the actual line because it's just like in my head, but... Of course, I say that and it could be wrong. But yeah, Nathan reveals, no, David, you're the guy. And then David's like, what do you mean? I don't have any sh- Oh, because I have a lot of wives and concubines and I killed Uriah. 
I could see how that, yep, I could see how that's me. And so it, it, it played out exactly like that, dear listener. That's exactly how it played out. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess I'm, I shouldn't be making light of this. This is actually like, this is a terribly sinful thing that David does. It is one of the worst things that he does in his, and it's, it's for sure the worst thing that he himself does. There's yeah, a few things sure. that happen under his watch where you're saying, hey, you should have known about this, but this is the great failure and sin of David, but also what separates David from many of the other kings and people during his life is that when he's confronted by Nathan, he doesn't have Nathan killed, which is what, you know, a certain, you know, maybe, uh, you know, Ahab and Jezebel and a, and a bunch of the other kings of especially Israel would have done. Um, David realizes that Nathan's right and he does repent. Um, he realizes the full scope of what he's done. And this is actually why we're going to jump into one of the Psalms early listeners, Ooh. because this particular Psalm, Aaron has a breakdown for it. And this was written specifically because of this event. Yeah. So this is a, a Psalm 51 is what's known as a penitential Psalm. There's a handful of them in the, in the actual entire book of Psalms. Um, and so before I get into any kind of like a quick outline for us or whatever, I'm just going to read the Psalm. So this is David's response when David is confronted with sin, when he's confronted with this act that he, uh, that he did in essence, having Uriah killed when Nathan confronted him, this was his response. Now, as you remember, David is, uh, one of the, one of the primary authors of the majority of the Psalms in the book of Psalms. Um, and they're really meant to be, uh, prayers and hymns, uh, laments, uh, that, and, and praise Psalms that they're just really, they're a way to express the deep grief, the deep honesty of, of one's person, personal thoughts and, and interactions in, in the midst of circumstances they face. So we're going to see David right here in essence, penning this letter, the 19 verses of it, um, and his response and how he responds, which I love it because it takes this, this, this section in, in first Samuel and or second, second Samuel and draws up deeper. Um, for us. And I think that's really important. So I'm going to read it uh, and then share a couple of thoughts that are more applicable for us to today, even though we're just talking about David. So uh, it says that Psalm 51, verse one, it says, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I'm conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you say, when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all of my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and the sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not be despised, or you will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will dwell in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered to you on an altar. Uh, and I just love the fact that you see this progression in David. David's response. He's confronted with this sin. Um, and you see this. I mean, some of the lines in, in this psalm are very familiar to many of us. Um and in, in one of them was you desire integrity in the inner self. You, des you desire character. Uh, teach me your wisdom deep within me. Uh, you know, there, this is a psalm that is really meant to be a response to, to sin, a, an awareness of sin. Uh, and you see it. David wrote this um, in light of the confrontation that, Saint, that Nathan had with him. And so um, the interesting thing is I think and I love this about as I was kind of reading through, I think this is the ESV study Bible that I was kind of just reading a cute couple of different notes about this entire Psalm. Um, but it's also very applicable to us today and how we respond to sin. It kind of gives us a very simple outline. And so this is where I shift from the, the, the context of the Psalm itself, more to the application of the Psalm for us today. Uh, and so there's just kind of a quick, how do we respond in the midst of sin? How do we respond in the midst of our our own rebellion, because David admits he has, has rebelled. I love that he also even repents of his apathy, because there was the implied apathy that we can get from some of the reasons why David was in a place to sin like this anyways. He he didn't take 
you know, the, the leadership that he called seriously in that moment is like he sent his troops to war when kings go with his tro- their troops to war. So there's just a lot of different things that I think are really important. But uh, so if I were to kind of break it down for us, um, it would it would kind of be broken down this way. Like the first couple of verses, like have mercy on me. If we were to, to respond with a simple statement of, Lord, have mercy on me, uh, according to, be gracious to me is what uh, David says, according to your faithful love, um, we just appeal to God for forgiveness. I think that's the first response in the midst of rebellion and sin is we, re- we repent, we, we turn to God for forgiveness. Um, and then you see in, in the second part of the verses three to five, you see it's the, he owns up to his sin. Um, and it's simply what it means. Like he says, I alone am guilty of this. Um, and, and I love that it reverses our tendency in humanity to typically typ- typ- blame. Well, it's not my fault. It's, it's so-and-so's fault. Well, why did Bathsheba have to take a bath on the, on the, on the, on the roof of her house there? Like, why, why did she have to be out at this time of the day? Or it, oftentimes it's easy for us as human and just modern day humanity to blame. Well, I, it's not my fault. I'm the victim. When the, the, the beauty that Psalm 51 reminds us of is David's ownership of sin because we are, we need to own, own our own choices. Uh, and so it's appealing to God for forgiveness. It's owning up to the sin. Uh, it's seeking restoration and renewal. And this is the bulk of it. Like this is the bulk of this Psalm in verses six to 13. Uh, and I do think that this is the proper response in penitence. It's this picture of, I recognize my sinfulness. I'm appealing to God and I'm craving your presence, God. I'm craving purity. I'm craving witness to, to your truth in your work. Uh, and, and I desire to seek that restoration renewal that can only come from you. Uh, and then it leads to what, I, what I've kind of penned here is like, we can then worship truly verses 14 to 17. It shows this natural response uh, that when we come to acknowledge sin and we, we respond by pursuing re- restoration renewal, there's this worship that's true. And it's not indicative of emotion. It's not indicative of a circumstance, but it's indicative of our, of our newly right standing with God. Uh, it responds, our worship then will respond to who God is and what he has done or what he has, what he did. Uh, and then finally, I love this one thing David shifts at the very end of the Psalm in verse 18 and 19. He then in essence says this, do good design. His concern is not so much with him anymore, but it's with his people, uh, with it's with God's people. And it's this picture of understanding his spiritual health uh, connects directly to the well-being of God's entire people, the whole body of God's people. And, and I think it's important for us to recognize as we come to moments of awareness of sin, because I'll, I'll be honest with you, I think that this is something that we shy away from as modern Christians. I think we don't like to be confronted with sin. I think we want to err on the grace side of the filter and the perspective and the spectrum, but we, neg- and we, we neglect at times, myself included, a full understanding of truth. Um, and, I, and I've said it this way a few different times, and, but it's this whole idea, it's, it's what Christ has come to do involves a full measure of grace and a full measure of truth. It's not one or the other. It's, it's both hand and it's not 50, 50, it's not this balancing act, but it is a full hundred percent measure of grace and truth. And, and when we stop for a moment to realize that our, our, our rebellion is, is hindering, hindering the movement of the, of the gospel, the movement of God's kingdom, which is the whole body of Christ moving forward. I think it's really important to understand that it, it's, we, we take, we have to take ownership, but also understand the value of my personal spiritual health is connected to the whole body of Christ. Um, and, and so it is this, it is this perspective for us, like to, to be able for David to stop and say, but do good to Zion, that there's prosperity and there's your, your kingdom moving forward and your provision and health. Um, he understands his place in that, that, that movement forward. And so um, I know it's kind of a sidestep to be applicable, more of application driven today, but I do think as you read through it, cause you're going to read through it again this week, as you read through it, it is to remember the circumstances surrounding David's life, like circumstances surrounding this Psalm specifically, he's caught red-handed. I mean, he, he point blank. Uh, and I love the passage where it says, David, he falls on his face mm-hmm. as Nathan calls him out. And it's this deep grievance. Um, and he comes face to face with his sin. He comes face to face with his rebellion. Uh, and, and he owns it and he seeks the restoration and renewal. And you see these words come to life in the humility and the, the, the plea for mercy uh, and and the joy, restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me a willing spirit um, I, 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 by giving me a willing spirit. Sustain me by doing that. I just think it's a, it's such a beautiful picture to understand to do and go where God is calling us as His people. We're not perfect. We're not going to be perfect, but we understand the full measure of grace and truth, 
God's mercy is rich and God's mercy is what draws us to repentance. Uh, and so I just love the picture that it paints that David presents for us in Psalm 51, but also it very clearly helps create some kind of quick outline out application outline for us today. Well, I think it's just, it's such a sobering story as well, because it's just about the dangers of being in power and thinking you can get away with things. Yep. And David could, I mean, honestly, David had no um, human accountability. The only person who can hold him accountable here is God. Um, and so I think it's allowing that to happen. And also I think uh, uh, the more I read Samuel, the more I kind of view it as this narrative of it's everyone becoming like the nations around them. And this, like this, like exactly. this story of David, this is straight up the alley of every king <laughs> or, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. this is not out of, this is not out of the normal. If this was in a history book, we'd be like, okay, yeah, David, David did that. Yeah. He was a king during this time. That's kind of what they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we see David acting not as the shepherd boy who loved the Lord and continuously sought after him, but rather as just one of the other pagan, you know, numberless other pagan mm-hmm. kings around him. So, well, the other side of it too is, I mean, think about it. Nathan, the, the Joab, I think was the, the general that he told, Hey, put your eye at the front lines at the heaviest spot mm-hmm. and then pull your troops back, but leave your eye out there. There was a very small group of people that would have known what had happened. True. So David very well could have gotten, gotten away with it. You know, oh, he could have looked at Nathan back. Oh, that's a big deal. God forgive me for that. That's a bummer. Mm-hmm. But he could have gone on with his life. He could have gone on without this deep understanding and remorse because it would, I mean, who's going to, who's going to challenge him? No, it's true. Who's going to question him? So it is, it is, I, I love the, I love the response that David presents because he very well could have gotten away with this with minimal damage and minimal repu, repu minimal damage to his reputation mm-hmm. as king. Um, he was called a God, a, a man after after God's own heart. Like there's these things in his reputation that he very well could have, but the way he responded, I think, is so brilliant and so powerful. Um, and and I think for us today, like it, it it does come to me to to call into question at times in my own life, like God, what are the things that I'm just willing to not not a, not address, but just say, oh yeah, that's a I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. Right. But there's like this deep remorse and and grief about rebellion in me. And I think that that's the tension. Um, and as Christians, I think we, we, we could learn a lot from pausing and evaluating based upon this circumstance in David's life among many, many other conversations <laughs> in scripture. So, um, I think that's what I think is so powerful. And I love, cause we don't often get this either. We don't often get a, a, a direct connection, uh, like this in the book of Psalms or in scripture, you see kind of, it merges together a bit, but this blatant response to Nathan's call out, I think, is really, really good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, to kind of wrap up the story, um, as punishment, David and Bathsheba's child that was conceived in the adultery uh, would die. And then, however, after him, uh, Solomon is born. And So, yeah, Bathsheba and David are now married. They stay together yeah. after Uriah has been killed, uh, and they have another son. Yep. So, and we'll hear more about Solomon next week. Get ready. Uh, so from one failure to another, I put uh, in chapter 13, <laughs> we see David's sons just, they're just out of control. Um, and this is actually, I, it's reminiscent for me of Eli and his sons at the very beginning of Samuel. Um, and even Samuel's sons, I didn't think about this, but his the, yeah, the people yeah. straight up tell him like, yeah, yeah, your sons are out of control as well. So this does seem to be a theme of um, pretty much everyone except Saul <laughs> seems to, uh, which is so interesting. And I guess, I mean, Ishbosheth probably wasn't, you know, didn't have a good head on his shoulders, but Jonathan, you know, way yeah. to, way to be like one of the few not crappy sons good in job, this Jonathan. narrative, Jonathan. Uh, so sorry. Anyway, so that's all happening. Uh, if you're listening with kids, this part's going to get a little graphic as far as what happens. So you might want to skip forward, um, a few minutes, but, uh, David's son, Amnon, is just wildly attracted to his half sister Tamar, and so remember, uh, I think I said this last week as well. But this is just a this is just a real theme, all throughout the Old Testament. It never works out to have multiple wives. <laughs> it is just never, ever a good idea. Uh, and so Amnon uh, wants to be with Tamar. Um, eventually, uh, he commits an incestuous rape of her, and then after this, he's angry and he rejects her. So essentially, he. There is not a way he could have dishonored her more. So, because the rape in in general is incredibly dishonoring and incredibly sinful, and then after that, to just not give her, I, I, I believe I I didn't I should have looked a little bit more into this. I believe the implication there was that he should have made her his wife, um, 
whether it's that or if it's just kind of showing her honor by like still allowing her in his presence and stuff like that. But he full on sends her away and mm -hmm. he won't have anything to do with her. Um, and so she goes to live with her brother Absalom and he, she essentially just becomes, I believe, a single woman for the rest of her life living in his house. So Absalom, another one of David's sons, not not happy about this. Nope. And here's the, I, I mean, I'm I not going to be either. Yeah. I'm not going to blame the guy for being super upset about this. Um, but he, instead of kind of bringing his fury to bear right at that moment, or even like bringing David into this and confronting Amnon with David, all those different things. What we hear is that uh, David was very angry. We don't really hear anything that happened. We don't hear any discipline or whatever. And I think the implication <coughs> is kind of that nothing really gets done here. Um, and Absalom waits two years to do anything. And then he invites, you know, all the sons of David, they go to this party. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's been a full two years, obviously water under the bridge. So nope, not so much. Uh, and Absalom murders David, or sorry, not David. He murders Amnon at the party. Um, eventually, or at first word reaches David that all of his sons have been killed, which I thought would have been an interesting parallel to Gideon and Abimelech. Because remember, Abimelech hmm. kills all of the sons of Gideon except for one. Um, so, But luckily, that is not what happens here. Absalom just kills Amnon. The rest of the sons of David flee. And so, um, which is nice because it, I guess it's kind of, it gives David like a, oh, it's just the one son, which is still sad. Um, a little bit. I mean, here's the deal. I don't, I mean, Amnon wasn't exactly a great guy. Uh, Absalom's murder can be a sin, but I'm not going to shed a tear over uh, over Amnon being taken out. So, what do you just a quick side note? Evan doesn't have kids, so that's true. Yeah, and I'm not talking about this from a father's perspective. I'm talking about this specifically from, from Evan's just, perspective. Yeah, from reading about <laughs> these characters in the Bible. Mm. I'm sure David obviously is grieved in his heart, and we'll see. You know, we'll see him grieve for more sons who aren't particularly great people here in a little bit. But that's you know, it's coming up. Uh, <laughs> So Absalom flees for a time, and then he eventually returns to Jerusalem with the help with the help of Joab. So Joab wants to see David and Absalom reconciled. Uh, this is one of those moments where Joab's heart probably is in the right place, but he really messes it up. Joab's an interesting character. He's not he, a he absolutely is. He's not a good guy. He's hot or cold, is what I feel like. Yeah, he's, there's never really consistency or loyalty from him, is what I feel well, when I, I'm reading. I think it's just one of those things where we always have to keep in mind. We, we try to take these characters and bring them into our modern culture and look at them th through these lens. Um, like David is like, if he was alive today and doing the stuff he did, he was, he's a warlord is what we would call him, right? Like that's what David is. Mm -hmm. um, and he has just these mercenary generals that are fighting with him. So they do do good things. Do, do. Uh, they do good things and they also uh, serve the Lord, but they're very much men in their time and they're just, I mean, they can just be ruthless. And yeah. so, but in this one, it does seem like Joab has the right motivations, I suppose. He wants to see David and Absalom reconcile. Um, so, but two years pass before David allows Absalom to see him. So uh, he allows him to come back into Jerusalem, but he does not want anything to do with him. He has to stay away. He's essentially in a, not in full exile, but he's exiled from his father's yeah, presence. He's a pariah. Yep. Uh, and then in that time, Joab and Absalom developed some beef over, uh, yeah. So Absalom's like, Hey, bring me up to David. I want to see my dad. And, Abs and Joab's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And then Absalom's like, I know what'll get Joab's attention. I'll burn one of his fields, which is okay. I mean, that doesn't seem like the super smart thing to do. I don't know if this is why specifically Joab does what he does later, but you know, I think it certainly didn't help their relationship. So yeah, eventually after that happens, David agrees to see Absalom and yeah, chapter 15, we see Absalom scheming to overthrow his father. So he believes that he should be king. Uh, we're told that he's just, you know, super handsome, apparently. He's got the long, flowy hair. All the ladies love Absalom. All the men want to be Absalom, you know, whatever it is. But, and he also does this, um, yeah, he, it, I would almost call it like a door to door campaign. Like he doesn't actually yeah, travel. It feels like that, yes. But every time someone comes in to get justice from David or whatever it is, Absalom would always be like, oh man, yeah, if I was king, I would have done way more for you, man. Well, anyway, hey, have a good day. Remember to vote Absalom in 20, whatever the next election here is. That's what it feels like. It's the schmoozing. Oh man. Yeah. So Absalom does this. And it's, I think it's a period of like four years that he does this. And so it says that he wins the hearts and minds of the Israelites because he just keeps telling them like, oh man, yeah, I guess. David's all right, but if I was king, boy, your life would be so much better. So not exactly a, yeah, not exactly a great guy. 
And he even recruits one of David's most trusted advisors, Ahithophel, which is, boy, this is just a week for hard names to pronounce. Uh, and then, yeah, it's a whole thing. So David flees Jerusalem, and then he meets a man named Hushai. Uh, and Hushai is basically, he sees David, he covers his face with ashes, he's clearly in mourning, and he's like, oh, you are like, a, and he's not being you know, facetious. He's like, literally like he loves King David. Yeah. And he's like, this is a tragic thing that your son has done to you. How can I serve you? Essentially, he wants to know, and he, he wants to join David's army, I believe is what the, the implication is. Yeah. Um, but David says, no, no, here's what you're going to do. I have an idea. So he, Hushai goes into Jerusalem and he schmoozes up to Absalom and he becomes one of his advisors. And so we get this whole uh, Hushai versus Ahithophel. Ahitho, yeah, that's how you say. Okay, uh, they're they're at each other's throats all the time. Uh, in chapter sixteen, Ziba, this is Mephibosheth's servant. Uh, boy, these names. Okay, uh, he tells <laughs> he tells David that Mephibosheth uh, he views this whole thing as an opportunity to reclaim the throne of Saul. So he's like, yeah, but he's like, David's like, where's your master, Ziba? Why are you just here? He's like, oh, dude, David. Mephibosheth, he just, he thinks that this is great and he's going to get back Saul's kingdom and he's going to become king. And David's like, wow, that's scoundrel. Um, and then he gives Ziba everything that he gave to Mephibosheth. He's like, no, this is for you and your sons now. And so Ziba's like, oh, dude, thanks, David. You're the best. Um, we'll see how, I was about to say, we'll see how true that is. We actually won't see how true that is, but we're going to get another side of the story. We're not actually told which one is the right one. Um, I have my I have my theories on it, but it doesn't. You do? Actually, I would never imagine. Yeah, but it doesn't. It doesn't actually come out and say who is right. But we will hear from Mephibosheth before it's over. Uh, Absalom finally fully takes control of Jerusalem, uh, and he does some fairly disturbing stuff while he's in charge. I'll just leave it there, but you can read it for yourself. Um, Ahithophel and Hushai argue about what to do next, and so Ahithophel is like, "Look." Absalom, your father, his armies are weak. Uh, you need to take your armies right now and go crush him before he has a chance to turn around, gather his strength and, and come back. And here's the deal. Ahithophel, kind of a scumbag, good advice. That is military, at least. That is sound military advice. Uh, Hushai is like, no, no, dude, Absalom, your father's a mighty man. He's got, he's got his mighty men with him. You're not going to be able to take him on like that. You need to gather your strength and figure out what to do. And Absalom's like, yeah, I like what I like what this Hushai guy has to say. So he takes the bad advice um, purposely because remember Hushai is trying to uh, sabotage this whole thing, and he did it. Oh, Good he job. does his job. Way to go, man! Way to actually. I mean, there's not there's not very many people who are more helpful to David than Hushai in this moment because <laughs> he basically is probably he probably saves his life in this moment. Uh, and so Absalom sides with Hushai. Um, Ahithophel doesn't take it too well. So he just, he's like, fine, I'm out. And then he goes home and he puts his affairs in order and then he hangs himself. Is how, and that's the last we hear of Ahithophel. Um, a sad end, but I don't have to say his name anymore. So it's happy for you. Yeah. I'll so bad. I will take it. Uh, eventually, David and Absalom would go to war. Uh, David commands his commanders, and this is Joab, Abishai, and uh, Ittai, to deal gently with Ab Absalom himself. So they're saying, yeah, we need to put down this rebellion, but if you find Absalom, you, you, I don't want you to go headhunting, essentially, is what his whole deal is. I want you to capture him, bring him to me alive. Um, well, that doesn't go quite as planned. So in chapter 18, starting in verse 9, it says this, And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule and the mule went under thick branches of a great oak and his head caught fast in the oak. Uh, and he was suspended between earth and heaven while the mule that was under him went on. So he gets caught up in this tree and he's essentially hanging by his hair. Your beautiful hair was, uh, the, was the doom. Yeah, If I had a nickel for every time, my beautiful hair was my doom. <laughs> you wouldn't even have a nickel. That was hurtful. Uh, and a certain man <laughs> saw and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man, what? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? It would have been, I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. Okay, hold on, Joab. That was the exact opposite of what David told you to do. But he uh, would have given us silver and a belt. Oh, that's true. A belt, bro. I, I forgot about the belt. Gosh. Ah, that's pretty tempting. Uh, but the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand, the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Atai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. So the that guy's like- in quotes, by the way. Yep. The guy's like, so this was not like a private meeting. <laughs> this is David like talking to his armies, like people are overhearing it. They're like, Joab, what are you talking about? Of course, I'm not going to kill Absalom. King David specifically requested that we do not. Uh, he said, on the other hand, if I dealt treacherously against his life, 
and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof, aloof, aloof. Uh, Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. So, I mean, that just kind of tells you a lot of what you need to know about Joab. Yeah, he's like, he's essentially lost the argument. He's like, I'm not going to waste my time with you anymore. And he grabs three javelins uh, and he thrusts them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. So he's still hanging there. After all this, he's still hanging there. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess the guy could have at least like cut him down by the hair or something, but... Yeah, what are you going to do? And 10 young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. So So did he not die with his javelins to the heart or did he die? That's, I mean, probably it was one right after the other. Yeah, I'm imagining Joab starts it and then the rest of them goes. Well, yeah, because I guess it was his armor bearers. So Joab would not have gone out without his armor bearers in general. Right. Uh, And that, yeah, we get this kind of interesting parallel to where, remember the, the armor bearer of Saul is not going to kill Saul. And so it's not quite the same thing because Absalom here is not the Lord's anointed. He's not the king. Um, But we do get this kind of parallel picture of someone not willing to kill someone in that moment. Um, Although I get there, obviously there are differences there. It just made me think of it. Uh, So David is heartbroken over the death of his son and Joab rebukes him for this. He says to Joab, is like, he was a terrible son. Like he rebelled against you. He was living in full on rebellion. Why are you sad about this? Um, And David never forgives Joab for what he's done. Uh, and so he removes him from command and he puts his cousin, his cousin in, in, oh my gosh, his cousin in command instead. Um, we'll see how that goes a little bit as well. Uh, and then when we get into Kings, we'll see, uh, David is really, he's not, yeah, he doesn't care for Joab from this moment on. Joab is essentially completely estranged from him. And remember Joe, this isn't Joab's first infraction either. Remember he kills Abner who is Saul's general, who joins David. Um, David's very upset with this. And then he's going to kill David's own son, which David is obviously very upset about as well. So you don't see a lot of loyalty from Joab. This is what like I was saying earlier, but you also see he's kind of been in it for his own little right. his own little advancement. How can I get ahead? How can I do what I want and doesn't really consider what the king wants? Yeah, I view, I view Joab very much as... He's loyal to David in that he wants what David can give to him, but he's not. He doesn't have a yeah a massive personal loyalty to David, and maybe that's not fair. But that's kind of how that's how I read it. I agree. Uh, in chapter nineteen, David returns to Jerusalem and he acts mercifully towards those who wronged him. Um, Abishai wants to put uh, Shimei to death, who is one of the conspirators, but David's like, nope. And then also, I love this because he just like he's just like, what am I going to do with you, sons of Zeruiah? Remember, Abishai is Joab's brother, so they're just. They're hotheads, but Abishai, you know, <laughs> I like him. He, 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 he always comes down when David tells him to. So remember, he's the one who's like, dude, just let me kill Saul right now. He's in front of me. I'll pin him to the ground. And David's like, no, don't do it. And Abishai's like, okay, fine. I won't do it. And then this one, he's like, dude, let me kill Shimei. It's fine. And David's like, no, don't do it. And Abishai doesn't do it. So unlike Joab, Abishai actually listens. Uh, and then later on, Mephibosheth is going to explain himself. So this is chapter 19, verses 24 through 30. It says, And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had taken neither uh, he had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back for safety. So kind of like the playoff beards that NFL coaches do, but <laughs> for opposite reasons. Uh, and when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord... O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride and go on it with the king. For your servant is lame. Oh, so yeah, remember Mephibosheth cannot walk. Mm-hmm. And so if if someone takes all the donkeys and they just leave him alone at the house. He, he can't go anywhere. Yeah, he's, he's incapable of actually joining David at that point. Uh, he has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king is like the angel of God and therefore do what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but doomed men to death before my lord the king, but you sent, uh, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I than to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall defy, divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. So here's the thing: Aww. we're not straight up told who's lying. I feel like Ziba's lying because this, A, Mephibosheth, you can't fake like the grown out beard and all of that stuff. right? Yeah. He, so he clearly has actually been doing this. Um, and then the fact that David offers him half of his land back and he says, no, let Ziba take it all. I'm just glad that you're back here. So I, Mephibosheth seems to be 
actually glad to see David and still eternally grateful for the mercy that he's been shown. Ziba, I, I mean, he seems like the type of a guy who yeah. would do that. So, when I wonder, like, I, I wonder if the significance of him not taking care of himself, not trimming his beard, washing his clothes is a matter of his of just being lame, um, like physically lame, or if it's a matter of, yeah, him, of him grieving the fact that the king, like he, the king is out and he can't be with the king. Like there's this, cause sometimes you see this, this expression of grief is done in a physical appearance. Um, other times you see grief is done or sometimes, or yeah. So that could be a layer too, but I, I'm not sure. I mean, I'd probably have to read a little bit more, but I, I would I'd think it curious. is, I would think it is a form of mourning just because it goes out of its way to say like, and he had not done this since the day the, the David had left. Yep. So I, that, that, that to me makes it seem like that's what's going on. All right. Well, we're going to start wrapping up the rest of, we're going to go kind of rapid fire here to wrap up Samuel. Uh, in chapter 20, we meet Sheba the Benjamite, uh, who apparently still resent the whole Saul thing. So remember, Saul is of the tribe of Benjamin. So from their perspective, David is this man from Judah who has overthrown the Benjamite king over Israel. So obviously some of them still have some hard feelings about that. Um, also, there was the whole thing at the end of Judges 19. So I think the Benjamites are probably just suspicious of the rest of the tribes in general. Not saying that they, you know, didn't deserve, well, I guess they, I, I wouldn't say they deserved like the almost genocide of their people, but it was definitely a bad deal. Um, so he begins a rebellion against David. So David sends Amasa, who is the, he's the cousin of Joab, who he put in charge of his armies after that. Uh, he sends him to go take care of it. So he gives him kind of an impossible task. And I'd never read this before, but like when I was studying for this, I guess it makes sense. He tells him you have two days to raise the army from all the corners of Judah. Hmm. And that is probably actually like almost impossible to do. So Amasa takes longer than that. Uh, Joab, yeah, he's, I guess he's mad at Amasa for doing that. He sees an opportunity. He's also jealous of him. So he just murders. He straight up murders him. Uh, and it's trickery, very similar to how he kills Abner. Remember Abner, he doesn't like, challenge him to a duel or meet him on the battlefield. He's like, Hey, Abner, come over here. And then he just stabs him. He essentially, essentially a Mesa. He does the same thing to a Mesa here. Um, and so, and it's actually, it's really sad when you read it because he doesn't like, he doesn't die right away. So he's just like lying there bleeding out and all of his armies are marching past him and just kind of like watch marching past their general. So they clearly don't have a lot of respect to him for him. And it also just shows that Joab is just, he's just a ruthless. Yeah. The guy's, I don't, I don't care for Joab. Um, you stink. Anyway, so Joab and Abishai eventually put down the rebellion. Uh, so to keep going, chapter 21 sees David kills seven of Saul's descendants. Uh, he spares Mephibosheth, at least one of the Mephibosheths. There's two Mephibosheths, and that's hopefully the last time I'll be saying Mephibosheth for the rest of this year. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's, it's this really interesting where essentially the he puts to death some of the sons of Saul for the sins of Saul, which kind of goes against the whole, um, you will not be punished for the sins of your father. And so I, I just didn't really have time to go like deep into that one, but I do, I am curious about, is that a thing that the Lord sanctioned for this special purpose? Or is this a sin that David commits by doing this? Um, I don't really, it's the, the, the plague lets up after it happens. So it kind of seems like that is a thing that the Lord commanded there. Yeah. So it's interesting. Uh, and then finally we get a, uh, we get the cool exploits of the mighty men at the end of chapter 21. So if you ever been like, who are the mighty men? You get a good list of, uh, yeah. like it's, 30 It's a them. fun one. Yep. That's where you see Ben Ayaz in a pit with a lion on a snowy day. It's true. Uh, oh wait, hold on a second. That was the wrong spot. You get some exploits, but that's not the, that was my better. And I, I led you astray there. Well, later on in a couple chapters, you'll get that story and all that stuff. Uh, the song of David, Sorry. I know that's, well, that's both of our bad listeners. Uh, the song of David in chapter 22 seems to be an earlier copy of Psalm 18. So, and the only differences are like some Hebrew spelling that don't actually matter in our English translations. And so the idea is that Psalm 18 is a more formal spelling in the Hebrew and then Second Samuel 22 is more phonetically spelled out. So that's kind of the difference there. But yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's a psalm that David writes. Um, and then these in chapter 23, we get something titled The Last Words of David. Um, these probably aren't the actual last words of David in that like, these aren't the things that he spoke. I would think this is a song that he that he composed for the occasion. So knowing he's on his deathbed at this point and he writes this, um, but we're going to hear him in Kings. We're going to talk about some of the last things he actually mm -hmm. tells uh, Solomon and some other people. So, uh, but it, either way, it's a great 
picture into the heart of David because he's kind of at the end of, it's almost his Ecclesiastes a little bit where he's at the end of his life and he's communicating these are the things that are important. So uh, it praises Yahweh for raising him up, thanking him for establishing David's kingdom. And then it asks that his enemies will be dealt with. So it's kind of a cool little recap of David's life. Uh, after this chapter of Israel's history comes to a close, we get, this is the list of mighty men where we get all of the exploits. And so this is where Abishai is being named the chief of the 30. So that's nifty. Go Abishai. And then this is where we get the- uh, <laughs> That's really why Evan likes him. He's the chief of the, of the 30. Yeah, exactly. Although he never rose to the three. So, you know, favorite. <laughs> it's Listen, all- you don't have to be part it's of all, if you're the chief. It's all politics. What are you going to do? Uh, and then that's where we get the Benaya and the snowy lion and the other cool stuff he does. That's not, you know, Benaya, he's, he's been relegated to just the lion guy, but he does other cool things things too. Come on, people. Uh, and then finally, Samuel ends with, this is a really odd story to kind of, to end it on, especially because you don't, yeah, we're not told about David's death in Samuel. We'll learn more about that in Kings. Um, and it's not something, it's also something that we wouldn't bat an eye at today. So David takes a census of his people. And today, like we take censuses all the time. Like, mm -hmm. I guess it's in every 10 years, but like I've done almost 30 now. So I've done like two senses, sensei, I don't know, man, sensei, sensei. Uh, censuses, but master splinter. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, but by doing this, what David is showing is that he doesn't have complete confidence in Yahweh's protection. Mm -hmm. And this is the same thing we have with the judges, right? The judges are told specifically, you don't need rulers over you. It's not the judges. The people of Israel are told, you don't need rulers over you. I will raise up judges when the need comes. They're like, no, 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 we want a king. And again, we see David with, when Yahweh tells him, like, no, I will, I will be with you. And David's like, well, I, I just need to know, like, you know, if I need to raise an army, how big could I get the army? All those different things. So that's kind of what David does. Um, and so, yeah, by doing this, he shows that he trusts in his own strength rather than Yahweh's. As the years go on past the judges, Israel becomes more and more like the nations around them. Uh, and then the book ends, God is really mad about this. He sends a plague and the book ends with David building an altar and he sacrifices to save Israel from this. And that's the last moment that we get in second Samuel. So it's jumbled around. It seems like the timeline is messed with a little bit because it seems very unlikely that David pens his last words. And then all this stuff still happens after the word, afterward, but we're kind of getting a wrap up of the period of David as king of Israel. And then when we move into Kings, we'll get the tail end of that, but then really we'll get into, I mean, all the Kings we're going to yeah, be talking yeah, about, we're, we're going to be talking about a lot of Kings, most of them, just the worst, but more, more on that later listeners. Uh, well, before Aaron jumps into the rest of the Psalms this week, we do want to take a moment to say like, you know, hey, if you haven't left us a five-star review yet, go ahead and do that, uh, particularly on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It really helps grow this community of people reading the Bible together. And of course, we always appreciate your feedback and reviews. So we would love it if you did. Yeah. And I love that we are 20 away. I think I came into the year saying, man, I'd love for us to have 100 Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews. Uh, we are currently sitting at 80. So those of you who have given us a review, Ooh. thank you so much. Uh, and we're actually at 56 on Spotify right now, which is really rad. Um, Thanks, guys. Because that's a fairly new thing anyways and this gals. year. So um, I haven't determined what my goal is, but I think it'd be cool if we had 100 in both. So we're halfway through the year. We'd love to see that happen. So thanks for continuing to give the reviews and be a part of this podcast community. Uh, I'm going to continue in the Psalms, <coughs> but I had to cough first. Come um, on. So I'm going to continue the Psalms. We're reading about uh, about eight of them this week. Yeah, about eight of them. Uh, I've already hit Psalm 51, so I'm not going to touch on that one this week. Uh, but we're going to start off this week with Psalm 20 and 21. Uh, and I love this Psalm. I actually, I've actually had kind of a little bit of fun reading through the Psalms and just Ooh. kind of seeing how they're breaking down and uh, seeing that Psalm 20 and 21, they actually go together. Um, not like last week or two, or two Psalms were exactly like they meant to actually be a, a one Psalm entirely. Um, but these ones are like a prayer I'll get into. They're, they're a pair of royal Psalms, uh, which in essence, those are Psalms that are directly about the Davidic, uh, king, uh, kingship for the people of Israel. Uh, so they're royal Psalms or they pair a pair of royal Psalms. Uh, 20 is a prayer that God will give success to the Davidic king, uh, particularly in battle. And then 21 is a giving thanks to God for answering the pr prayer requests of chapter 20. And so I'm going to read them real quick because they're short enough and they're, it's fun, but it's fun to see. Again, Psalm 20 is going to be a prayer uh, for success in battle, for protection in battle. Uh, it's for nine verses. It says this, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of Jacob's God protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and sustain you from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt offering. Selah. Remember, Selah is a moment just to pause and reflect. That's what it means. 
Uh, verse four says, may he give you what your heart desires and fulfill your whole purpose. Let us shout for joy at your victory and lift a banner in the name of our God. May the Lord fulfill all your requests. Now I know that the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven and mighty with mighty victories from his right hand. Some take pride in chariots and others in horses, but we take pride in the name of our Lord, the Lord, our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the King. May he answer us on the day that we call. And so that's a prayer that would be recited to David before he's going into battle. Uh, and then I was going to say, I just love the, uh, I love the picture of, I will not boast in, I forgot what you list off, but the horses and the chariots will boast in the name of the Lord God. It's so reminiscent of Paul when he says, yeah. I will not boast in anything but Christ and him crucified. So I just, I yeah. love that little connection. There. When you even see that, you even see that in David when he's taken on Goliath, go back to one of the highlights of David's life, right? He, he's like, you, who is this that defies the armies of the living God? Like he doesn't boast in his sling. He doesn't boast in his armor. He boasts in it's, it's God who's going to give me deliverance. Right. Um, and so that's, that's fun to, to read through there, that connection as well. Um, so 20 would be recited before David goes into to, to battle. Uh, and then verse 21 would be after the battle, the aftermath, if you will, uh, says this, Lord, the king finds joy in your strength. How greatly he rejoices in your victory. You have given him his heart's desires and have not denied the request of his lips. Selah. For you have, for you meet him with rich blessings. You place a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. He, his glory is great through your victory. You confer majesty and splendor on him. You give him blessings forever. You cheer him with joy in your presence. For the king relies on the Lord. Through the faithful love of the most high, he is not shaken. Your hand will capture all your enemies. Your right hand will seize those who hate you. You will make them burn like a fiery furnace. When you appear, the Lord will engulf them in his wrath and fire will devour them. You will wipe their progeny from the earth and their offspring from the human race. Though they intend to harm you and devise a wicked plan, they will not prevail. Instead, you will put them to fight when you're ready, your bowstrings to shoot at them. Be exalted, Lord, in your strength, and we will sing your praise and your might. And so it's just kind of fun. You see this 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 two-part uh, prayer for protection, prayer for provision, and then an answer and reply to praise God for his, giving thanks for him answering the request of, of Psalm 20. So I thought that was kind of fun to read. Uh, Psalm 55, we get back into the laments. I feel like we do a lot of lamenting in the book of Psalms, which is true. Um, yeah, I mean, David does a few things that are worth lamenting over. It's true. And then there's a lot of other people <laughs> lament as well. Uh, but Psalm 55 is an individual lament, so it's not one that's necessarily corporately read or sung aloud among God's people, but it's more of an individual uh, it, prayer. It's, it's a prayer for God's help against dangerous enemies who hate. Uh, I love how I love how I think this again this is the ESV Study Bible that refers to like God's people as the faithful. Uh, hmm. And so it says in the in the in the kind of the notes section, it says you know the help against dangerous enemies who hate the faithful. Period. So it's just kind of a fun little thought just to think about it. Um, the twist on Psalm 55 here is we'll actually see that it's it's in regards to a betrayal from a close friend um, who have seen who seemed to a fellow be a fellow pilgrim on the path of life. Um, and there's actually some that deny that, that David could be the author, even though it says it's a Psalm of David uh, att- attributed in the title section of this Psalm, uh, because there isn't a specific instance of betrayal uh, in record that it's recorded in this capacity in the way in David's life that would associate to this Psalm. Um, but it, but one of the things that it says is that that misses the point of the Psalms. They're not, they're hymns. They're not just an autobiography of David's life. Um, and so there's not really an indicator whether it is, that we don't have an account that would, this would associate directly to, but it doesn't mean and discredit the fact that David still wrote it. Um, and so that's what Psalm is. Psalm is praying against, in essence, he's betrayed by a close friend. And so he laments that. Um, we see Psalm 62 is a corporate song by God's people. Uh, and the thing I like about this one is it, 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 it would, it would foster this confidence in God's care. Um, especially when they're facing people who use power and wealth to oppress them. Um, there's a strong temptation, uh, in such case to either despair or else to take security and power and wealth rather than God. Uh, so you see this corporate song that's sung in, in Psalm 62, uh, that would reinstitute and reinvigorate the confidence in God for his provision for his care. Uh, Psalm 70 is another one we're going to read this week. Uh, this is an individual lament. It's an urgent prayer request to rescue, to be rescued from gloating enemies. Uh, typically it would be just recited during the memorial offering in the old Testament, uh, which is 
which is interesting because if you go back to the Old Testament and remember some of the sacrifices that were played out in the book of Leviticus and see them played out even in Exodus, uh, where God establishes this proper order of worship regarding sacrifice, this psalm would be one that would be uh, recited during the memorial offering, which the memorial offering is is to remind God that its reciters actually consecrated the gifts that were provided and products of God's provision. Um, and so it's, it's a lament. Um, about an urgent prayer request, but oftentimes was associated to the memorial offering. Psalm 71 uh, is an individual lament attributed to a faithful person. Again, I love that. Uh, in danger from enemies who would cause hurt by taking advantage of any weaknesses or distress. So it's pretty general in that regard. Um, and then Psalm 43, this is again was an interesting one. It actually goes together with Psalm 42 as a song with a three-part stanza. Uh, so Ooh. you read Psalm 42 and you'll see two parts of a three-part stanza, and then Psalm 43 is the third part of that stanza. Uh, both psalms express the longing to return to God's presence, uh, re the return of God's presence to the sanctuary. Um, the singer you'll find is lamenting his circumstances which keep him from attending worship at the central sanctuary. In other words, there's, there's a reason why he is physically uh, unable to go to the house of God to worship God. Uh, and there's a desire to be uh, at the temple and God's presence to be at the temple. And he really wants this. And so you see this three-part stanza, the stanza wraps up by this lament, uh, desiring to be physically in the temple, worshiping God um, and singing this. And I, and I do think that this is so, so profound, like singing this would create a mindful expectation uh, for God's presence in corporate worship. And it's, it's, I love, I love that simplicity or that simple statement because it reminds us even coming to church together, church, the building, um, that there should be an expectation. Like God, God's presence dwells among his people. We are the temple, uh, scripturally speaking, first Corinthians chapter six, but is there an expectation when we arrive at a building together on Sundays to worship together in song and the message and responding in, in connection or giving or whatever at the Grove church is kind of like our three part deal. Uh, but there is this expectation that exists and you'll find in Psalm 43 is this desire uh, of the individual to not just be present in the sanctuary, but also for God's presence. There's an expectation that if I could get back to that building, then I know God's presence would be there. Um, and so I just, that's kind of a, an interesting, I remember as a student being challenged all the time, like what's my expectation coming in to a gathering? So, um, but that's where we're going to wrap up the Psalms this week is in Psalm 43. Uh, like I said, there's about eight of them we're reading. Some of them are kind of interesting, kind of fun to, to see uh, both in, but I think that's the beauty and the fun part of reading through the Psalms this year. Absolutely. Well, before we wrap up today, we did have a question come in. So it says this, I have a question for Aaron and Evan. Well, that's convenient because that's us. Uh, in, yeah, I'm Aaron. <laughs> in Exodus 4, 15 through 17, when Moses tells God why he doesn't want to speak to the people due to his, speak, uh, due to his speech impediment, do you think that later on in Exodus 32, when God says, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt, that things might have gone differently if Moses had been the one speaking to them instead of Aaron? That uh, that they are your people. So remember, God says, go see your people. Uh, it implies that God thinks God thinks that Moses should have handled things differently instead of via Aaron, uh, that perhaps uh, they would have listened and obeyed if Moses was giving them instructions and explanations. Uh, I compare this to when you send children out with a parent or caretaker that allows the children to beg and give into getting candy in the checkout line. <laughs> so this, se this seems like a personal story here. Your parent. <laughs> uh, the parent at home tells the other parent or caretaker, tell them no candy will ruin dinner, but the other adult is easily swayed uh, to give in because they want the candy too. So don't listen. Uh, don't want to listen to all the whining and gets embarrassed by the kid throwing hissy feet, hissy fit. Uh, the easily swayed tells them no candy as they go into the store, but as they come out, obviously it kind of happens. Is it the similar thing with Aaron? Uh, if Moses had said directly, "Hey, no golden golden calf. I'm watching you guys," before he went up the mountain. Uh, but no, no, no. Let me let me say this. It said, or did the "I'm watching you" motion with his fingers? That's true. That like that's the best thing. Like that's absolutely parenting. Like I'm watching you. No golden calf. Don't do it. I'm watching you. Yep. And she thinks that the story would have gone differently. So this is, I think this is just some, obviously this is all speculation, right? Yeah, this right. is not, this is not a, there's, we're not going to be given a clear answer on this. Um, I do think I had never viewed this before as one of the unintended consequences of Moses's cowardice in the beginning. Hmm. So cause I, I do think it's, well, because no matter what Moses was going to go up and receive the law. Um, but I do wonder, would Aaron have felt the ability to actually full on take control in that moment if he wasn't actually 
Moses's second in command. You know what I mean? Or the, Moses and Aaron kind of are co-leaders almost of Israel. Obviously, historically, we don't look back on it like that. Um, but when they're in Egypt specifically, Aaron is the one who's declaring these things to Moses. So does Aaron have an inflated sense of what he can and cannot do specifically because of that moment? I mean, I think that's interesting to think about. I, I also think like that that generation of Israelites was so <laughs> messed up. I think they would have... They would have found a way to they worship would have been an a calf, idol, no matter what. Let's just be honest. Yeah, and so, I, so the couple things that you bring up is a. I think, yeah, if Moses was there instead of Aaron, for sure, this doesn't happen. Moses is not allowed. I mean, we, we see his reaction. He goes down, yeah. he grounds it up, and he makes him drink it. Which yeah. is Moses just, is, was more of an angry leader than Aaron ever was. That's for sure. Yeah, Aaron's Aaron seems like much more of a pushover. Um, so I do agree there. Whoa. Not Aaron, Aaron, the high priest of Israel, Gosh, not Aaron. Then sorry, be careful there. Um, so. Yeah, so I do think if Moses was there in that moment, it would have been different. Uh, I had never thought of it in the sense of, yeah, like you said, one of those, or like the listener said, one of the unintended consequences of Moses deferring mm-hmm. so much of his call to his brother, because um, Yahweh obviously knows that he's called Moses to this. Yeah. He knows that Aaron has some weakness, um, and Aaron does some great things as well. I don't want to like just completely yeah, for sure. poo-poo Aaron, but this is clearly, I mean... Th- one of his greatest fa- failings, that and trying to usurp his brother. Those were both kind of, <laughs> those were low moments, Aaron. Yeah. Those were real That's low. True. No, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, you already said at the beginning, right? This is this is purely speculative because we can't really determine the cause for, if, if Moses was really there, would, would this have happened? Probably not. I mean, I think if Moses were down there, but Moses also was called to go up on the mountain with God. And so uh, I think when, either way you cut it, it's you're, you're, either disobedient <laughs> right or or your people are disobedient and so it i mean it is funny that you know that god's like hey your people and mo's like whoa 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 wait a minute what like, do you mean my people yeah uh so i think that's kind of a funny you know thought sometimes but it is and you know i think as the leader uh, of any organization i mean just in general or even parenting like there's always a parent that things won't happen it's it's perfect in my in my my family dynamic right i've got three kids if you didn't know and I've got a nine-year-old who will turn nine. Actually, she just turned nine at the drop of this recording. Um, I've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And and things run a little differently when I'm home versus when it's just my wife at home. And and it has nothing to do with like I'm a better parent than she is. It has everything to do with just different personalities and being wired differently. So all that to say, I think that the influence of the primary voice absolutely carries more weight. Um, But I think the way things played out, uh, they played out the way they did. And... And eventually the people still rebelled, like the people still, even with Moses present, they still threw fits and grumbled and complained. And, you know, Moses went to God a couple of times and said, hey, your people are complaining and throwing a fit. Why did you give them to me? Why did you call me to this? So there's this back and forth, I think, dynamic you see um, between God and Moses. Yeah, it says that they were friends, right? I mean, that's that's part of the dynamic of their relationship was they were friends. Yeah, it's flippant um, to describe it this way, but it has the vibe of like a bickering married couple at times <laughs> where they just keep being like, it's your people, your people. Yeah, uh, yeah that is a little bit flippant. But um, it's it's true. There is this dynamic there. That is, so, I mean, yeah, I think – I do think it plays out a little differently if Aaron was there. Um, but then the question – then it begs the question like when would we have gotten the Ten Commandments? When would we have seen – um, that instance happened because that was part of the, the process. They went right. because P, the, if you th- if you remember even the context of this, they're standing at the mountain with the with the glory of God descending on it, and they're at the base of the mountain, and Moses is there standing directing the people, and the people are cowering and fearful and saying, "No, no, no let Moses go talk, we, not, not us. Let Moses go do that. Yeah, we we want Moses to go." So there was this this not rejection, but this this trepidation that existed and and not necessarily even the reverent like trepidation, but there was this like this, this dynamic that existed there too. So uh, it definitely is like a fun question to think about like, man, Moses, you're such a bonehead, but um, yeah, I don't know. And then, and this is just a side note and I'll stop with this. Uh, There's part of me that wonder (laughs) that really wonders how much did Aaron actually speak to the people on behalf of Moses? Because a lot of what I I read, I always read through the filter of Moses' speaking, uh, but maybe that should be read through Aaron's speaking, but that's just me. Yeah, that's a good good question too. But anyways. Listen, hopefully that was fun. Great question. Yeah, there's not, I mean, obviously there's not like a right or wrong answer. I love questions like this. I think sometimes it's it's just fun to add 
uh, a little speculation and a little bit, hmm, what about this? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, thanks for sending it in. Well, that wraps it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church. And uh, if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that The Grove Church does, you can do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.